I was in the music department in Hertz Hall playing Chopin on the piano, and a rock came through the window. And I said, what's going on? I looked out the window, and there were swarms of people protesting, loud, noisy, rocks flying, things happening, tear gas. What, you know, what is this? And I just said, oh, my God, you know, this is what's happening. No time for Chopin. It was such a total transformation. We lived on brown rice and soybeans. We soaked the soybeans every night. We had um, collectives. I lived in a place that had no straight lines. It's called the womb. An architect designed our living space, and it was all soft foam. So I lived in a womb. We thought that time would go on forever, the same way we thought the Beatles would go on forever. In 1968, Suzanne Chani was a music student at UC Berkeley when she met Don Buchla. Buchla had designed a modular synthesizer. A modular synthesizer kind of looks like a box with lots of knobs and wires, so it's not exactly inviting if you just don't know anything about it and it can feel a bit daunting. They have dials and switches and lights and faders. It can make just about any sound you ask it to. That's Letitia Trandafir and Caitlin Aurelia-Smith. They're synth artists who've been inspired by Chani's work. More experimental electronic records can feel kind of cold or distant or disparate. And Suzanne's music is pretty far removed from that. And that's Michelle Macklem, who produced this piece. Chani made electronic music warm, human-feeling. It's part of the reason she's considered a pioneer. And while Chani has won five Grammys for Best New Age Album, it's her other work that most people know best. Coca-Cola Pop and Pour. This 1974 Coca-Cola ad was just one of the many commercials that she scored and did sound design for. Her ad for Merrill Lynch, which is called Bull in the China Shop. Picking and choosing the right investments requires very careful handling. One wrong move can easily damage the best laid plans. And an ad she did for General Electric called the Dishwasher Beep. The list goes on. Columbia, Time, PBS, Atari, Xenon Pinball, and AT&T, among countless others. So Suzanne really has almost two careers at the same time. She's doing things that are avant-garde and underground. And then at the same time, she's also working in the most mainstream way you could possibly conceive of in that she is doing commercials. Can you talk about the sort of dual nature of her career? Definitely. So the thing I found about this was just when I'd gone into starting to look at Suzanne's career, I found those two things to kind of be at odds with each other or present some kind of tension. But as I started to uncover more about the story and talk to Suzanne and people around her, I found that it wasn't so much a tension, but just a reality of the life that she wanted. And I think they're really symbiotic in that way, where one couldn't exist without the other. 
I'm Jessica Hopper. And from KCRW, this is Lost Notes. Today's episode is about an artist at the vanguard of experimental electronic music, someone who used an esoteric instrument to design some of the most well-known commercial sounds in the world. This is Sonic Sculptor, produced by Michelle Macklem. Stick around. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I met Don Buchla coincidentally. My boyfriend at the time, the architect who designed the womb, was a TA with an art professor named Harold Paris. And Harold had a big warehouse down by the waterfront in Oakland, right next door to Don Buchla. And I went over there and saw this incredible, huge warehouse filled with Don's blinking modules, you know, towers of modules. Once I saw that, I said, I have to, I have to be here. This is where I belong. And so I went to work. There I was working at Don's. I stayed and I soldered for $3 an hour and I got time in his studio. My goal was to get my own, and that became my mission from that moment. They were expensive. In today's money, that would be, you know, another dimension. Everything was gargantuan, heavy, expensive, out of reach. I mean, the buklas were being designed for institutions. We were building instruments for CalArts at that time, for Norway, for Oslo. Individuals didn't own them. Don Buchla never worked in a predictable way. This is a man whose socks never matched. He didn't want to fit in. He didn't want to be commercial. He didn't want to be successful in the, you know, the definition of success that normal people had. He didn't want to sell a lot of instruments. He didn't want to be popular. He thought if he were popular, he'd done something wrong. And he wanted to be comfortable with the people that were with him all day. So he hired friends. There I was, you know, at the big bench, soldering with about eight, nine other people. And I said, Don, would you be able to teach us? And so he started a class. It was in a little dark room. There was me and I think three guys. And after the first class, Don came up to me and he said, don't take this personally, but we've decided that there won't be any women in the class. I said, how can I not take that personally when I'm the only woman in the class? Men actually were not against us. They just weren't comfortable. 
you know, I worked on a very large system. We weren't really allowed to talk. We had the NPR station on in the background, and we were all just working away. And I was sitting there, and I was salivating. It's like, I need one of these instruments. I am going to get one of these instruments. I want one of these instruments. And the guy next to me was a Buddhist, and he said, I want nothing. One should never want anything. Nothing is, you know, what we need to embrace. We couldn't have been more opposite. I was never going to make enough money working at Don's to buy a system. That was when I had my next epiphany. My boyfriend, he was from Milwaukee, and his neighbor was a filmmaker who did commercials. And over Christmas, he talked his neighbor into giving me a job to design sound for 10 Macy's commercials for Christmas. They were little tiny commercials, like 15 seconds each. And lo and behold, they loved them. And lo and behold, I made money. More money than I'd ever made. You know, this was like, okay. Thousands of dollars for doing this job. And I bought the Buchla. That became my path So one thing that is really fascinating is the way that she was using this kind of very mysterious instrument at the time attracted a lot of advertisers. You have the advertising industry increasing billing like crazy in this era. You know, for the first five years after World War II, advertising billings went up 50% each year and 78% by 1962. My name is Tim Taylor. I'm a professor in the Department of Ethnomusicology at UCLA. I am the author of a chapter in a book called The Avant-Garde in the Family Room, Advertising and the Domestication of Electronic Music in the 1960s and 1970s. There's been a sort of an upward growth in American consumer habits since the late 19th century. The size of the average American home got a lot bigger in the 50s because people were buying more stuff. And you have a lot of prosperity with people with more money to spend. You have the GI Bill helping people to buy houses. So you have a fast-growing middle class. And this is all part of the realization on the part of some politicians how much our economy spends on consumption, but also changes in the culture that uh, emphasize consumption and turn more and more things into objects that can be consumed. And Suzanne Trani really paved the way for the mainstream use of electronic gear and advertising music. And the boucle is this strange thing that's kind of alive, and the way that Suzanne Trani ended up using it in her work was like super compelling, even though they didn't really understand it at first. Every young musician wanted to make a record back then. And and to do that, you needed a record deal because nobody knew how to make LPs and the studios were expensive. And I did get offered a record deal by Fantasy Records with a producer. And I took my bukla over there 
and was so excited because I was going to record my music. And I get there and the producer says, well, no, 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 we're not, we're not doing your music. We have a script here about the end of the world and we want you to do the sound. That's how people thought of electronic music then. They didn't think of it as music. I just walked out. That was a defining moment for me uh, when I realized that I had to bootstrap my financial life and commercials. The next thing that happened was that I moved to L.A. and was immediately hot stuff. Word gets out, you know, oh my God, this girl has this instrument, you've never seen it, oh my God. Everybody wanted to know about electronics. And I got hooked up with some of the top film composers and gave them lessons. Dominic Frontieri, he did all the John Wayne movies. And he hired me, and we did an all-electronic score at Warner Brothers Studio. It was so exciting, you know, the idea of let's do this all electronically. But Dominic really taught me film scoring. I needed that training. That was something that I used my whole career. I was very good at synchronizing the sound to the image. I didn't really like L.A. It was kind of boring. It wasn't a stimulating environment for me. So I went to New York. You know, I wasn't planning to move there. I came with the bouclet to do a concert, and there I was. And the second my foot touched the ground and the cab driver came up and said, where do you want to go? You know, whatever. I mean, it was just so direct and so like, wow. Um, I arrived on April Fool's Day. 1974, so I thought it was really fun, you know, to have this whole thing be a joke. I rehearsed for several weeks before that concert, and then I did the concert. And uh, decided just to stay. couldn't afford to send for my stuff. I hit bottom in New York. And that's when, you know, Philip Glass had a studio called Basement Recording. And I lived there for a while. So I slept on the floor of Philip's studio. Then I met Ornette Coleman, who was doing a session at Basement Recording. And he gave me a place to live. And I lived with all this, you know, his band. It was like, oh my God. And I got sick. Nobody knew what was wrong with me, but I was very sick. So I had a long, you know, illness of about five years that, you know, really did rob my energy. Turns out, you know, that I had, a, uh, before I moved to LA, I, I got a, an IUD and it introduced an infection so that even though I only had it for a few weeks, but I didn't know that's what was going on. All I know is that I kept fainting. I was tired. I couldn't function. So I kind of hit bottom and knew where bottom was. 
And New York is a great place to fight because it's all there for the taking. And I said, okay, where's the money? I need money. I knew commercials were an option. And somebody told me, you know, there's a book with all the agencies listed in it. It's the Red Book. And I got a copy of it. And I said, okay, I'm going to start at the top. I'm going to pick the top 20 agencies. And I got a calendar. And I would just call. And then they would say, call in two weeks. So I put that in the calendar and I would call again. I just called and kept calling. And, you know, at a certain moment, something just popped. And I got a job. With sound design for a Z. You know, there was some product that made, like, a Zorro. And I think I made, like, $5,000 doing that Z sound. And it was like, oh, my God, I belong here. It's so fascinating to me that New York's very happening. Like, it's the place to be for the work that you're doing. And coming out of the counterculture of the late 60s and then moving to New York and being in a really corporate environment where your work is to ultimately sell products, did you ever think about that at all? No, no. I I lived in a bubble. I lived in a musical bubble. I honestly didn't even know my clients. I, I honestly didn't pay attention to it. I didn't, I guess I didn't have to. Sound design, you know, is part of my blood. And so it just went from there, and it grew from there. And, of course, the next thing that happened was, you know, Coca-Cola. You know, I had my little calendar. I was calling agencies. McCann Erickson was... Probably the largest agency. I would get an appointment with the music director, and he wouldn't show up. And I got another appointment, and I went, and he didn't show up. And the third time that happened, I just said, where is he? He had an appointment with me, and I'm going to see him. And they said, well, he's in the studio. And I marched over, and I went in, I said, where is Billy Davis? And I said, well, he's in the studio. You can't see him. And I went over and I opened the door and I walked in. I said, Billy Davis, you had an appointment with me. And this tall black guy stands up and says, like, like, who are you? That moment, they were working on a Coca-Cola commercial. And there was a little hole in the commercial. It was a radio spot. He asked me what I did, and I said, well, I make sounds. And he plays this commercial, and there's a blank space in it. And he says, can you do something in there? And I said, yes. And he said, well, what do you need? I said, I need to get my bukla. <laughs> like, what the hell is a bukla? You know? And he said, well, go get it. I realized instinctively, because I was mercenary at the time, uh, that if I did a sound that fit only in this one commercial, that it would be limiting. And my brain, working overtime, said, you know, I shouldn't do anything pitch-centered for this particular jingle that they're playing. I need something abstract. 
that can fit in any place. And that's how I thought of the bubbles. Because one, they're easy to make on the Buchla. You take a sub-audio waveform and you pick off the harmonics, which are, you know, beautifully arranged. The little maneuvering and filtering and all that. And then the fizz with the white noise. And and that gives you Coca-Cola pop and pour. was ideal because there was so much control. And so I made the bubbles and we made the fizz and sure enough, they loved it. And sure enough, they used it in every single commercial all over the world. I got paid for every usage of that sound and it was a lot. I didn't know it was happening. The checks started coming in and I, I would put them in the top shelf of my closet You know, it just started stacking them up there. And it was like this wall of like... (laughs) It was really quite an amazing, eye-opening experience for me. After that, I was in demand. On all fronts. I was doing uh, session work for albums. Uh, jazz. You know, I didn't know how to play jazz. That's okay. They wanted me. There was this mystique, like, you got to have Chani on this, you know. It was kind of a magical time. She could get sounds out of that machine that really nobody else could do, like the Coca-Cola pop and pour, which is really quite astonishing. Coca-Cola... Like obviously not a fantastic thing in the world, but that's the way the patronage works these days. And it's not a new thing that rich companies are like funding the arts. It's been around since like, I don't know, the Renaissance or even before. So it's just a shame that I guess the way that the entire system these days is set up that we have to rely on private sponsorships to make ends meet as artists. And I don't blame individual artists were doing that. I think that that's not actually productive. It's interesting at this stage of my life, you know, Coca-Cola, that's become kind of like the, the iconic symbol of my sound design life. But for many years, it was not. It certainly was a moment in my life in the sense that it was like hitting the jackpot. I didn't know at the time what it meant to do that. One of the commercials that Suzanne wrote music for that I write about is one for General Electric who produced a dishwasher in the early 80s that had a user interface that beeped and had lights on it. And Suzanne was asked to sort of bring it to life. She did this incredibly catchy and almost kind of cute 
commercial with electronic sounds in it as if the dishwasher was, you know, R2-D2 who was talking to you with beeps. You know, I made little thematic gestures. It was like a language. It was like the the dishwasher was talking. It was called a talking dishwasher. So, it, I, you know, it gave it something to say. There was no way to synchronize the sound and the image. There was no SMPTE time code. There was no digital, you know, lock. It was a really taxing process. It was a group functioning team. It was like a surgical room, you know, with everybody working together. The assistant would be on one machine, the engineer on another. I did the music and the design. Every blinking light was a timing. If you look at the score for that, there are maybe 60 cues in there. Every single light is hit. But you don't notice it because, you know, you do it in a musical way, but it's all there. That level of coordination, that was my specialty. Another commercial that she wrote the music for was for Merrill Lynch, the brokerage company. Picking and choosing the right investments requires very careful handling. One wrong move can easily damage the best laid plans. It depicts a bull in a china shop, and the bull moves sort of very slowly and weaves its way through the china shop without breaking anything, which is the point that, you know, you're, you're safe with Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch, a breed apart. There's a lot of marriage going on between the sound and, and the image on many, many levels. You're not consciously aware of this, but, you know, the bull changes his pace, right? And the music does that, too. The image has all the crystalline objects. And so the sound can be crystal because it's electronic and you can make crystalline sound. The classical sound, I created a classical theme that was typical of a fugue. It works on many levels. There's an emotional level where you're trying to represent a certain feeling. What do you want the viewer of this commercial to feel? They want to feel a little suspense about what's going to happen. And then it comes to this perfect resolution where, you know, people feel very confident and there's this dignified ending. And, you know, it's all designed to manipulate, (laughs) you know, the hearer into an emotional place. I mean, all of this is a microcosm, but I lived in that microcosm. It was a whole world to me. 30 Seconds was a a feature film for me. I lived for making it perfect. It's the audio equivalent of those gorgeous pictures of food you see in magazines or on TV. Like, you know, they're opening an orange against a backdrop. You can see like every little squirt of orange juice coming out. This is like the audio equivalent, you know, it sounds like the perfect sound of your soon-to-be refreshed thirst. Name a product. I did so many that you could just grab it out of the air. I did the Columbia Pictures logo. Something for AT&T, which was their long-distance sound. A lot of car commercials, Lincoln Mercury, 
I did cosmetics, sensual, feminine, you know, Clarence sonically. The beautiful mm. new wave, the conditioning wave. Atari, of course, was a big one. My technological design was kind of paralleling advances in technology in general that were going on. And so all of this technological advancing that was going on in the design of consumer products needed a voice, a special voice. The business after World War II really shifted over towards either praising the virtues of the product or making the users of the product seem to be like cool people and you want to be one of them. So Suzanne was, of all the leading advertising musicians I can think of, she was, yeah, I can't think of anybody else who was still concerned with trying to bring the product to life. The most important thing was for me to manifest my vision of what it was. You hired me, you want me to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it my way. If you don't like it, no hard feelings, go to somebody else. Because my feeling about these clients, honestly, was that they didn't know what they wanted. And they hired you to give them confidence. They didn't want you to, you know, say, oh... Oh, yeah, yeah, maybe we should do it that way. It was like, you know, <laughs> thank you for your input. I would at least pretend to take input. And then we'll do that, and then you present it, and that's it. I was very strict with the clients. I needed to focus to do my work. And I didn't want a lot of interference with my process. So I made very kind of strict rules about when I could be interfered with. I wasn't one of those really accommodating people. I didn't listen that well because the communication was so fuzzy about music and sound. I learned so much doing commercial work. I learned uh, studio techniques, production techniques. I think they really were synergistic. My commercial work really did support my artwork, not in obvious ways. I had decided already to self-produce because I couldn't get a record deal. And I just said, okay, I'll do it. I'll make the money, I'll hire the studio, and I'll do it on weekends. So... My life was pretty intense because I'd worked for money all week. And then on the weekends, I would do my art music. And that first album took two years, and it was very expensive. To book a studio for a weekend was thousands of dollars. But it also gave you such a commitment. You know, you're there, and you're going to do it. This was so important for me to do my music. Nothing was going to make it anything less than a joy.
I stopped playing the bukla partially because it broke. And that was traumatic for me because I couldn't get it fixed. I was off the deep end. It's as if you played the violin and suddenly they took the violin away from you and you couldn't get another one. Oh my God, I had to have an intervention. I had friends who said, look, you've got to start playing other things. You've got to just move on. The thing that got me out of New York was because I had an early breast cancer. And that was a sign to me that I was supposed to get out of this fast lane. My doctor said, you need to meet with a, you know, a counselor. We recommend this after this surgery. And I had never spoken to anybody. And I, I'm talking to this uh, Austrian therapist And she looks at me and she says, Suzanne, do you mean that you'd like time for a personal life? And I thought, oh my God, I have no personal life. And that struck me very deeply. I was in love with the work. I mean, you love it. But I needed to change. I just left. I left everything. I just walked out. I mean, I stayed there long enough to do radiation And people wanted to buy my studio, but they wanted me to be there for a year or two years or whatever. And I said, no, I am so out. I moved to California and uh, I went back to the piano. It's just a whole world that I had forgotten, the touch of the piano. She's an incredible piano player. She just has a wealth of really incredible insight on recipes for composition. I first met Suzanne in 2013 in Bolinas, California, where I was living. And we met at a dinner party and We were just hanging out after the meal and getting to know each other. She asked me what I did, and I said that I played the bukla. And then she said, what do you mean I play the bukla? (laughs) And I actually didn't know that that was her who I was talking to, because if I did, I would have been very uh, nervous. (laughs) And then it clicked, of course, when she said that. She wasn't aware how many people love her electronic music and, like, how much of a legend she is. She hired me to be her assistant because she was about to go on tour to start playing again. I think she had played one show before that. And that concert was my very first comeback concert with the Bukla in 40 years. I didn't want to do it. I had been invited to play at Moogfest. And I said, why would I play at Moogfest? I would only play the Bukla. And she said, wonderful, because we're doing a tribute to Don Bukla. I said, oh, okay, okay. So I signed on. And then they said, would you mind doing a pre-Moogfest concert in San Francisco? And I thought, well, that's easy for me. It's in the city. I just put my Bukla in the car and 
So I did that concert, and I've done a lot of work since then. I'm just a guest in this new world, and I'm going to be exiting soon. You know, I do feel my days are numbered. Every time I'm in a state, I would say, oh, I will never play the piano again. And I'm with the piano, and I say, I will never play the bukla again. And then I'm in the bukla, and I'll say, I'll never play the piano again. <laughs> it's, like, it's like I'm a broken record now. Now I don't believe myself. So <laughs> right now I am not playing the piano. I had hand surgery this year. I'm grateful to have the bukla now because if you have hands that don't work, you know, the bukla is perfect. Maybe it's a good thing to be in electronics now with my old hands. This episode was written, produced, and scored by Michelle Macklem. Special thanks to Andrew Wong for sharing his expertise. Also, Letitia Trandafir, Caitlin Aurelia-Smith, and Tim Taylor, who contributed to this documentary. Michelle Macklem scored this piece on the Buchla 200 and 200E. Lost Notes is produced by Mike Dodge-Weisskopf. Our associate producer is Paulina Velasco. The executive producer for this season is me, Jessica Hopper. Nick White is the creator and executive producer of Lost Notes. The show is made with the support of KCRW's Independent Producer Project. For more on this episode, including Chani's music and pictures of her playing the bukla, visit us at kcrw.com slash lostnotes. Also, find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by using the hashtag lostnotes. If you enjoyed this episode, please review us on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends, all of them. Next week, the story of the first all-female rock band signed to a major label and a look into the price they paid for being trailblazers. Ladies and gentlemen, five, four, Fanny. The curtain would open, and out we'd walk into our freedom every single time. Nobody was there to tell us what to do. We turned our amps up to whatever. Jean played whatever like she wanted to. We had our harmonies. Alice's drumming was incendiary, just out of this world. Jean and Alice played so well together. It was just crazy. And I, I truly believe that most people didn't even know what they were saying. I listened to now to some of the stuff that Jean and Alice were doing, and I, I don't understand it. And I was there. I'm Jessica Hopper. Thanks for listening.